hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. Representation of the word. Right? And finally, information that is sent to the, to the facial muscles or to your hand for writing, doesn't matter what, to create a word. So, locus area creates words. Or for signing So, here's how the model works. So, this sort of summarizes it. Spoken word goes to area 41. Remember that paragraph here? Logging area 41. The Vernicus area, which contains the sound, and you hear a word. And then, when you're thinking about what the word means, Rokas area controls the motor programs, spatial, uh, part of the motor cortex, so you get connections there. And these connections are all true, by the For a written word, we go to area 17, because that's going to control your hand. In 1939, then the Vernicus area. That's what we're reading. Okay. Basically, what this is saying is that information is analyzed by Wernicke's area, right? And it contains sound and meaning, and then that's all assembled in Broca's area. And that's very broadly true, except it's not really completely true. So this model isn't bad, it's just that there's a better way to look at it. And that's how science works, right? You get a model and you make it better. You don't, it's always about making better and better approximations. So while you almost certainly learned something like this in intro psych, it's, just an oversimplification. And that's fine for most of our purposes. When we get a little more complicated, like we're getting in this course, uh, it's just, uh, it's just not quite right. So let's look at something. Whoops, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. There you go. So the contemporary sort of notion of how this works is that there are two streams that connect to the auditory cortex to the frontal lobe. This should remind you of vision different streams. There's the auditory dorsal stream, and that does sound localization, so where is something? We have this in other primates, not just us. So lemurs have this, and, 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 and gorillas have this, and 
uh, lemur gorillas, which are a very strange. You know, that's, you're not kidding. There's no such thing as a lemur gorilla. Though that would be cool, a gorilla about this big. Because you can hang out with a gorilla that big. You get a gorilla any bigger than that, it'll kill you. Um, so it's the wear pathway. And then the auditory ventral stream, right, uh, does different stuff. So there's two pathways. They connect to the auditory cortex. I'm reading notes that I wrote here because this, I don't want to screw this up. Uh, to the frontal lobe, each pathway accounting for different linguistic rules. Auditory ventral stream pathway, that's this one here, right? Does sound recognition, it's the what pathway. What am I hearing? The dorsal stream, in both humans and non-human primates, by the way, is responsible for sound localization. I mentioned that before, it's in all primates. It's the, so it's the wear pathway. In humans, this is especially in the left hemisphere. It's also responsible for speech production. Okay, where am I here? Speech production, speech repetition, lip reading, phonological working memory, and long-term memory. Uh, sorry, long, and, and, and uh, I shouldn't say long-term memory, but, and putting things into long-term memory. Let's take that a little more closer to reality. So we got these two streams, and you see this in, as I said, audition. I think if you remember, I said well, more on this later when we talked about this in vision. You can actually see these two different streams here. So the auditory cortex of a human and a monkey. So human, monkey. So the auditory cortex of the human and the monkey. Uh, Right, bring the monkey, bring. So the orange bits here, the auditory cortex, and that's the monkey, that's the human. Compare that, by the way, the size of that, to the whole occipital lobe for vision. Both us and monkeys are way more visual than we are on auditory. We can certainly hear things and localize them. Both us and monkeys. But, and we certainly all see things. But we do a lot more seeing than we do hearing. We're, we're very visual animals. So the blue in these diagrams uh, represents the uh, auditory dorsal stream, and the red is the auditory ventral stream. Which you should know again, because the dorsal, uh, dorsal and ventral work. As you can see, this, we the connections in humans are a little more developed. And a little different. But not super different than monkeys. That would be your player. This is monkey, I would imagine. So that's super different. So the auditory ventral stream, this recognizes what we're going to call auditory objects. So a sequence of tones, which is, you know, when you think about it, that's what language even is, right? It's a sequence of tones. So the shortest unit of speech we're talking about here, those are phonemes. 
So what's a phoneme? They're just well, the shortest unit of speech. So when I say the word phoneme is one, O is one, N is one, E is one, U is one, and Z is one. Phonemes. Now, I've mentioned this before, you can't necessarily, like depending on the, on the language you learn, or, or, or the languages you learn as a kid, you may not be able to make certain phonemes now. You can eventually train yourself sometimes. I've talked about how I eventually learned how to do one of those R's back in my throat, but it's difficult. So we're actually born with the ability to make a lot of different phonemes. We can make all of them for human language, including things like, uh, what's that South African language? It's spelled X-O-S-H-A. Try to pronounce that. I don't know how to pronounce that. But it's got clicks in it. Clicks in None of us can probably know what here speaks that. I think so. So there's a click in that language. And it, it sort of sounds vaguely like, but it's not that. There's something else people are doing with their lips and mouths and tongues and I don't know what else. Had you heard that language as a kid, you could make that sound now. I heard it and did a remnant. Trevor Trevor Noah, The Daily Show, he, he speaks, that's one of, one of the main languages he speaks. And he, can, he can do that, if he, he can, it's, it's, and so can, you know, like a few million other speakers of the language, just he's the famous one. So these are these short, shortest possible units of speech phonies. We go from the middle, middle temporal gyrus to the temporal pole. That's, uh, I wish I, uh, do I have? A picture. My picture gonna be any good? You know what? Think about this. Medial temporal gyrus. It's a gyrus in the middle of the temporal lobe. It should be a pretty good idea of where it is. The middle. <laughs> Medial means middle, right? And there's a gyrus. And it goes to what's called the temporal pole, which is basically right in the middle, but deeper. So it's coming in, I guess we'll say. And that's where we're holding our what's called semantic lexicon. And this now connects to the inferior frontal gyrus. So that's inferior below, frontal. So there's a gyrus in the front. And that's where we have what's called our semantic lexicon. What that means, it's meanings of words. What do words mean? What do words mean? That's all that is. important in sentence comprehension because it's putting things in order and understanding what they mean. And that makes sense that it's in the what thing. It's receiving something. What is that? What did I just hear? By the way, all these things I'm talking about today are true for a language you learned as a mother tongue. Now, you might have more than one mother tongue, right? My daughter has two because she learned, learned both French and English you know, she was little. So she's got two. I've got one. Mother tongue. So when I, when I speak French or when I hear French or when I read it, and reading it, usually I have to read it, move my lips and say the words out loud that I understand what's being said. Um, and don't ask me to write French. It doesn't work very well, unless it's about hockey. But when I, so when I create French sentences or when I hear them, this is not what's happening here. Now, is, the, is my auditory ventral stream lit up? Yes, but so is a lot of other parts of my brain. If you put me in an MRI speaking French, the amount of neural activity going on is huge. English is just like this. 
We're set up to understand and produce languages. Super cool. And we have to hear those languages very young. Especially after puberty, if you learn a language past about 10 or 12, you're, you're going to be doing the whole brain thing. Now, then there's the where system. This is from the auditory cortex, remember that's right around here, to the parietal lobe, up here. This produces speech. This also allows us to do lip reading. You're saying, I don't read lips. Yeah, we all do to a point. How do you know you do? Because you can tell when the, when the, the um, you're watching something on television, you can tell when the audio is at a stream and a sync with the video. You know, you watch that, you go, ah. And it's very difficult. I don't know, I find it very difficult when the lips are making, moving differently than the, than the, the sounds are coming out. I find it very distracting. With you. That's why I never watch things dubbed. So always read the subtitles. I don't know how to read. So this is also important in our, in, in, in now it's incredibly important if you read lips as that's your primary way of understanding language, spoken language. But it's also important if, for all of us who don't just read lips as a primary way of understanding language. This is what allows us to repeat what we're hearing. So repeating speech. And this is where we call the phonological loop lives. The phonological loop is a memory, a working memory subsystem. We'll learn more about it. Take 3717 next turn. But, so the phonological loop does this. It's, it's what is in your head to allow you to have a conversation. It's what's in your head that allows you to, remit, to, to, to understand what you're reading so you remember the last sentence as you're reading the next sentence. Okay, that's what's going on in the phonological loop. That's part of what's called working memory. Some people might call that short-term memory. We don't really use that term much anymore. So the dorsal stream then connects the auditory cortex to the parietal lobe, as I said, which then connects to the inferior frontal lobe. Both humans and non-human primates, the auditory dorsal stream is responsible for sound localization. Well, that makes sense. And it's accordingly known as the auditory wear pathway. In humans, this pathway, especially in the left hemisphere, is also responsible for speech production. There we go. Speech repetition, lip reading, all these other things I've talked about. So this is just a nice little diagram showing you everything that I just talked about in the last like, three slides. dorsal and ventral pathways, doing different stuff. That's a human brain. <coughs> Not a monkey brain, but organized very similarly. So, if we're going to truly understand any characteristic, we have to understand the cause and the function. He said, tying it back to day two of the course. language evolve? And I don't mean the evolution of languages, though that is important in this discussion, as you'll see in a moment. I mean, where the hell did language come from? There's something we can do that no other animal can do. Look what 
thing, I can actually impart really complex ideas to you more or less successfully. Simply because I'm moving my freaking lips. I'm making noises and you know what it means. This isn't the same as a chickadee going, you know, doo doo. I can't do that with my mask on and I also can't do bird calls anyway, or bird songs. And that's just basically a male chickadee saying, hey ladies, that's basically all it is. And then, yeah, that's right. The Phoebe sample. Or chickadee dee dee is the call. And that's saying, I'm here, don't bother me. I'm just some guy. I'm in a fly. Are we good? That's basically what that means. Anyway, I'm vastly oversimplifying this. Don't tell Jennifer or Lori Bloomfield that I said it. Um, world experts in chickadee bird song calls. So, the point is, this is pretty special. How did this evolve? Why are we the only animals that speak? Why can't we look at our dog? Why doesn't our dog look at us and just say one thing? Like if your dog can look at you and go, darn a piss. Like that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be great because you could, you know, you could go, okay, I, I didn't, I go on outside. So how the hell does this evolve? It's wild. And of course the answer is, oh. It's a really good question, is the answer. This is something we can't really ever totally know. It's, uh, you know, evolutionary history is difficult because there's no other animals that speak. So because of that, we can't look to our closest relatives to say, oh, I see the chimps also speak, just not as well. Oh, chimps don't use verbs. Like, it doesn't work like that. There's something weird and special about us on a lot of levels. So it, is, it doesn't have to be a really good question. Now, new languages do spring up out of nowhere. In the 1970s, in Nicaragua, uh, a bunch of, mostly kids, were brought together to the capital city of Managua to live in a sort of group living situation. They were deaf kids. And the idea was to teach them. Like, it wasn't to push them away. It was, in fact, literally make their lives better. So, what happens when people have, are born without hearing and their parents don't know any sign languages or sign languages, they usually develop sort of a home system. So in my house, this means this. So they can get increasingly complicated sort of home signing systems. But they, they, they happen in, this happens in this guy's home, this happens in her home, this happens in his home, their home over here is different. But what happened was these kids were together and they all developed, they ended up developing a sign language. And it has all the hallmarks of a regular human language. It's got nouns and verbs and adjectives. It's got adverbs. It's got word order that matters. Uh, this is grammatical, I shouldn't say word order that matters. There are grammatical rules. No word order mattering is not depending on the language. So it's a real thing, it's, it's, it's incredible. So it did happen, you know, in like the late 70s and early 80s. It's wild, right? So we are probably wired for, well, I guess I say probably, I'm just gonna say we are. We're, we're hooked up for language that we use. Right, we've got probably five or six, I think I figured this out, we, we asked this, I asked this earlier on, of course, I think it was six different mother tongues in this room at any given time, it's six or seven. Yet we all can speak 
we all can speak. We can all understand. And our parents didn't have to sit us down and explain language to us. Now, now and then, classic example, you know, in, one of the things that happens in English is you overgeneralize rules. And that happens in every language. I just happen to know the English rules more uh, intuitively than so we have some irregular verbs in English, not a whole lot. We have some. One of those go in the past participle goes went, right? Except it should be goad. It really should be goad. I go to the store. Shouldn't it be? Of course it should be. It just isn't. And it's funny because you know, when you're a little kid, they're like maybe two years old, they actually will learn went. And then they'll generalize the rule goad. So you'll think, what, is my kid getting dumb? No, your kid's actually smart. They're, they're, they're generalizing a linguistic rule, which is to make a verb in the past, you put the ED on the end. We're just generalizing a rule. And all of us who in here are English speakers, we all made this mistake and it's cute as hell when a three and a half year old says, I go to the store and you go, no, you went to the store. That's what I said, I go to the store. We're hooked up for this. That shows that we're hooked, and this happens, by the way, in other languages, too. It happens in other languages, too. So there's this hypothesis called the mother tongue hypothesis. This is just the, the, an idea of where, how language might have evolved in humans. And the idea here is that people, that we have an original human language. Is it possible? It's interesting that when we look at, the further we get away from Africa, the fewer phonemes you have in a language, fewer sounds. The further away the human populations are from Africa, where we started out, the fewer phonemes you have, the fewer sounds. By the way, the number of sounds doesn't make a language any more or less complicated or any other garbage you might hear from linguistic nationalists. Everything works, they all work roughly the same, you know, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and all that stuff, but just because some language has more words for something or fewer words for something doesn't make it any better or any worse, it doesn't change the way you think. If I, I, I just want to cry when I hear like, well, you know, that's because the, when you speak a different language, that changes how you think. Well, that's actually a complete big pile of bullshit. We all think the same way. We're, we're one people, we're humans. By the way, it's really cool to learn more than one language. Even if it's just so you can watch more movies without the subtitles on. It'll change the way you think in that you can read the news from other places. <laughs> like, that's cool, and you should do that. But the idea that how you think. You know, the, the, the Inuit people have 5,800 zillion words for snow. They probably do. You know why? Because there's lots of snow on it. That shouldn't surprise you. But that doesn't make them understand snow any better than, yep. We have a lot of words for snow as well. Yeah. Sleet, slush. 
I bet, in fact, if we sat here and thought about it for a while, we could come up with about 30 easy. Especially regional variations, right? So that's called the Worf hypothesis, and it is just bullshit. That shouldn't be a reason to stop you from learning languages. Learn as many as you can. They're cool. So there's less genetic diversity in human populations as we leave Africa. The most genetically diverse set of humans in the world are in Africa still. So we're still super inbred and all really related to each other. But as you move out of Africa, you get less of them. Less of the, uh, or sorry, you get more of the inbreeding, so that's less diversity. And you also get fewer phonemes. That's, I guess, not very cool. So, am I saying that language has a genetic basis? Well, I'm saying that genes play a role. I'm saying that genes play a role, and there's a little bit more in the next spot. But yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that the language you speak or languages you can speak are somehow, somehow hard-coded in your DNA. That would be ridiculous. Also, languages wouldn't change as quickly as they do, would they? Languages change extremely quickly. Right? So when you're reading something from 30 years ago, or watching some TV show or movie or something from 30 years ago, the language sounds different than today. It's not greatly different, but it's somewhat different. And if you go back far enough, things can become almost incomprehensible. Anybody here ever read the Canterbury Tales? They not teach Oh, thank you so much. Good, good. I, I applaud your high school English teacher. The Canterbury Tales is written in Middle English. Middle English is not modern English. Right. It's way different. So I'm going to see if I can just see the opening of the Canterbury Tales. We'll take a look here. Because that's one of those things that's way out of copyright. That you understand. <laughs> That's English from about 800 years ago. It just sounds different. And all languages do that, all languages evolve. Okay. So languages do change as well. There's no way that our genes changed, we English speakers, for example, that our genes changed so much in 800 years, because that's nothing in evolutionary time, that they would explain language from then and now. When you read, by the way, if you read um, Middle English, especially late Middle English like Canterbury Tales, you can get a pretty good gist of it. Uh, in fact, you can usually, if you're, once you're used to reading that stuff, it's, you can pretty much just read it. 
And that's around the time when English spelling started to become standardized, and that's why we have all kinds of crazy silent letters in English. And the word knife spelled, or knight, knight like a you know, knight shining armor, K-N-I-G-H-T, because the way it was pronounced then was Kinnikihit. Because this is how the word was pronounced. And then it sort of drifts. But that's, it's like, oh, well, that's how we spell it now. Fine. Done. Next. Language probably showed up between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago. It shows up with mothers talking to kids, mother tongue, and that's the original human language. But no one can really know because he can't write. It, this correlates with behavioral modernity. This is when we talk about behaviorally modern, or sorry, anatomically modern humans. This becomes us, Homo sapiens sapiens. We are a subspecies of Homo sapiens. We're Homo sapiens sapiens. There's one other subspecies of H. sapiens, I think one other, H. sapiens Idaltu, which was just in Ethiopia, that region, one of Africa. No, that's not a extent subspecies of humans. So let's talk about genes and language. There's a family in the UK called the KE family. That's what they're identified as because, you know, privacy. About a third of the kids have developmental verbal dyspraxia. What that means is they can't name things. And it's not because it bumps on the head. They, they, they grow up that way. They can understand things. They can't name them. I think they're in Wales. There's actually less motor neuron activity when you have them like in an MRI, these folks, that make the tongue and the face move. They can't make the sounds. They just can't make the sounds. They have a mutation in FOXP2, which is an incredibly important gene in language production, but it's also an important gene in other animal communication. So a lot of animal communication systems involve uh, the FOXP2 gene, okay? So this is telling us then that our language, while special, cool, awesome, and amazing, is also just an animal communication system. Because remember the timing gene, her, remember that? The timing gene in Drosophila is basically the same as that gene that controls the circadian rhythm in hamsters. That was the tau gene in hamsters. It's basically the same gene that also controls the rhythmicity of growth in slime molds. So this, what this, this gene does, it's really important, FOXP2, it's really important in animal communication, we're animals, and you communicate by language, and of course it's going to be important for us. All right, questions about language stuff? Language evolution on its own, just looking at how languages change over time, is fascinating stuff. I have a podcast recommendation for you if you're interested in this. Believe me, you will go down a very deep rabbit hole if, you're, if you find it even vaguely interesting. It's called the History of English Podcast, just like how English Fascinating. Some conclusions. 
language is unique for humans. I mean, that's the, one of the, the big conclusion here is that language like we have is only in us. No other animal can do what we do. Animal models probably have some use here, and I think that's for things like looking at brain regions doing different things, looking at genetic stuff like the FOXP2, for example. But the idea that looking at, quote, ape sign language helps you at all is not on. That ape sign language stuff in language. It's cool as hell. <laughs> don't misunderstand me. But they don't. It's not the same as it is in humans. And you know what? If we can actually teach an ape like a non-human language, that'd be awesome. Like, who taught them again? <laughs> like, it's still our stuff we're teaching. It'd be like, you know, if you could teach a chimp to drive a car, that'd be pretty cool, except probably dangerous. But who made the car? The human. We're still something special about us. Still something pretty special about us. All right, any questions on this stuff before we go on? As I said, like any other characteristic, languages evolve and the ability to make language evolve as well. All right. Yeah, language stuff is great. I love it. I got way into linguistics during the pandemic and, and drinking mostly, but um, <laughs> I think we all had that problem. Maybe it's just me. Final topic. have got the idea that we talked through this course that the most cognitively complex animal on this planet is us. You probably thought that before, and I hope you still think it, because it's true. Um, we can think about things that aren't present. Now, other animals do this too. There is evidence that some corvids, so Clark's nutcrackers can do this. Uh, it's not as uncommon as people thought it was. There's some really cool work by Nikki Clayton, really cool work by John Crystal, among others, looking at animals planning things, not human animals there, and evidence that they think about things that aren't there. We can think about things that not, not just aren't there, but can't be there when we've never experienced. And we think about abstract ideas. But think about this. If I just said to you, think, imagine the sky being green. Done. That was easy. Next. Like, it's really trivial for us to do. I don't know that other animals can do that. We can also think about abstract ideas. I don't think that chimps sit around thinking about freedom, justice, and dignity. Because if they thought about dignity, they wouldn't throw their poop at each other. Pretty sure chimps have no dignity. <laughs> Chimp dignity would be a pretty good name for a band. Well, we, so ab those are abstract ideas, freedom, dignity, justice, morality. And we use symbolic and syntactic language, which we just talked about. 
language that has rules and, 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 and things have meaning, the utterances have meaning. Okay. We can plan and string events together as well. It's just something humans can do. And again, there's, there's increasing evidence that other species do this. It's all of these things that makes us special. And the abstract idea is it's probably really just us. Objects that aren't present, other animals can do that. And they can't do this. It's a bold didactic language. And I'm pretty sure that not all animals are able to plan and stream that together. It's, but, but it's not like, you know, this used to be thought of as being the only thing that was different. That's not true. But you put all these together, you get us, you, put, you take some of them away, you get other animals. So how are thoughts encoded in the brain? So I'm gonna tell you about something called, well, this experiment here, I'm gonna explain it, I'm not gonna say what it's called yet. So you take monkeys, take this picture of the book, and you show them a computer screen. Let's draw a screen right there. And there's dots. And we're going to say some are moving to the right. Some are going to be moving to the left. And the monkey's task is to push a button when it notices. And the, how do you do this? You've got to train the animal up. But what the animal is trained to do is it gets food when it gets this right. And the food in this experiment was a banana pellet. They just get a little pellet, pellet of concentrated banana. And, and I kid you not, it's called Purina monkey chow. I'm dead serious. Purina makes rat chow, monkey chow, like they, they make things for labs too, not just for your dog and your cat. So what happens is they do this right, they get a little, they get a treat. They get a treat. So, oh, more are moving in one direction. As soon as they notice that more than one, more are moving in one direction than another, they're supposed to press a button, one for right, one for left, and they get, if they're right, they get some food. So what you can do in this situation then is you can, when, you, when they push the button, you can then see when the behavior shows up, it says they know that there's more dots moving in one direction than another. Does that make sense so far? Yeah? But what if you could look at their brain activity? I think we all know where this is going. Of course that's what you do next. So you look, at v, you look at V5, and there are individual neurons in V5 that detect motion. Let me talk about that just a little bit. Cortical neurons. And they fire, and then the monkey pushes the button. Notice I said they fire, then the monkey pushes the button. They don't, they don't fire and immediately the monkey pushes the button. It takes about 300 milliseconds. That's a third of a second. Their nervous system detects the change 
In other words, the change in, you know, uh, how many dots are moving one way or the other. Before the behavior shows it. What that's telling us is there, now I don't want to use the, I'm going to use the word, but I don't mean it like the way humans think about awareness. They are aware, their nervous system is aware that, there's a, that, that thoughts are moving in one direction before their behavior shows it. That's called a P300. Positive brainwave, 300 milliseconds before the neuron fires. This happens in us too. This happens in us too. So we've got individual neurons. We're detecting that motion. And they're making decisions. And they're, they're, they're making decisions and then the behavior shows up to, 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 to you know, show that you've made a decision. So, <coughs> what we talk about here when we talk about these kind of decisions, and this is a complex decision compared to just, you know, is there a dog or not or something like that. What we talk about in these situations, we could talk about what Heb called a cell assembly. A cell assembly is just a pattern of activation that happens Yeah, let's say that mediates, let's change the word there, that mediates some behavior. <coughs> That's what a cell assembly is. It's a bunch of cells, when they fire together, it means something. <coughs> Just like, I think I, I told you about the work my, my daughter does about bird migration, I think I told you about that, right? And the fact that a certain kind of act, pattern of activation in White-throated sparrows, I think, um, is consistent with them navigating, and it's shut down when they're in a Faraday cage. It's obviously something you do with a magnetic sense. That's a cell assembly. So a cell assembly is a is a pattern of activation of neurons that represents some some behavior. Throughout all of this is something we like to call the association cortex. Say, Dave, you've never told me about the association cortex. Well, anything that's not doesn't have the name primary. So this primary auditory cortex we just talked about. Primary visual cortex is back here. But everything that doesn't have the word primary in front of it is what we call association cortex. Just another name for other stuff that does thinking. It's most of our cortex. Most of them. So, association cortex receives input from the thalamus. That's the remember that's the sensory rotor, right? It all, but also gets from areas um, that themselves get input from primary sensory areas. So what we have here is thalamus sending out stuff, but also association cortex is getting the raw information as well. It's not just getting processed stuff. It's very cool. Redundant pathways, all that. Okay. So let's think about a, a specific idea here. Let's talk about human spatial cognition. The idea of knowing where we are 
you know, when I say we, I mean one of us. Knowing in your head where you are and where you're going, this may have led to the evolution of consciousness. And you're going to say, excuse me? And I'm going to explain it to you. The notion here is that we evolved from animals that lived in trees. We haven't lived in trees, by the way, for a very long time, seven million years. That was before there was we. But our ancestors who lived in trees, and that's, again, that's something before there were ever humans, had to be very good at a very specific thing, and that is knowing literally exactly where you are, because when you jump from tree to tree, if you screw up, you die. So you better be very good at knowing where you are in three-dimensional space. We actually are very good at that. You don't have to be a trained athlete to catch a ball. Right? We can all catch a ball. You don't all be able to catch you know, a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. That's an entirely different matter. But if I just toss you a ball, you can catch it. And then we come down from the trees. Again, we is not us, it's way before we were humans. We have this amazing mechanism built in our head, this module for spatial cognition, but we don't need it anymore as, as much because we're not we're walking around on the ground. It's not so hard. If you fall down on the ground, you don't die. So we get all this extra spatial reasoning capacity. It gets used up by like this. Where am I? What am I doing? Oh, okay, that sounds like being self-reflected and conscious. That's an idea that uh, is originally, I should give you a reference on that. That's Danny Pavanelli. Pavanelli and Kant. That's their idea. So Danny Pavanelli and Kant, who's, I think, the graduates. Okay. So we're, we stand up, we've got the big heart, pumps blood uphill, and we've got this spatial cognition module. I think looking at the spatial cognition might be a fascinating thing to do. So, and we have these specialized subsystems that deal with various cognitive problems, cognitive information. So we have probably have a spatial module that just deals with relationships between things in space. Let's see how we can study that, but without opening anybody's head up, without putting anybody in MRI, let's just do this behavior. Let's listen to a talk I gave once. <laughs> this is quite a while ago. See, I wasn't even working here then. So, I'm now going to actually literally just give you the talk that I gave. Because, that's what this is. So these are two of my students back at Memorial. That's Corey Spracklin and Andrea Pike. And if you look closely at what Corey's looking at there, he's reading a paper called A Purely Geometric Module in the Rat's Spatial Representation. That's a really important paper by Ken Cheng, who's winning a research award this year from the Imperial Cognition Society, Ken's New Deal. So one of the things that the three of us were interested in, and this is Corey Spracken's <coughs> honors thesis proof, actually. What Ken Cheng did in 1986 with rats, that's the paper he's reading, 
is he got rats to search for cocoa puffs because I think as we all know rats are thank you so what he has here an arena which is just uh, you know a square box like this whoops I don't know what that little dip in the I'm gonna just let's do that again that was embarrassing it was so bad okay so it's a, a rectangular box. Yeah, that's better, because that little, the, the boot is a little smaller and going the other way. What the hell's wrong with me? I've been at the university for nine and a half years. I can't draw a straight line. Anyway, this is full of sawdust, and then one little corner here, we bury a cocoa puff. But the rat can't see it. Buried in sawdust, you put the rat in the box, and he runs around, and eventually he digs, they dig around, and they find it. By the way, they can't really, they're not very good at smelling. We had this idea that other, all other animals, all they do is smell things. No, really, rats are pretty visually, too. So their, their task, you let them in various places. They eventually learn with a, with a little, with a cocoa puff is buried. And very quickly, they get perfect at this. And Cheng had different um, cues on the walls. So maybe that one was like that. This one maybe is like that. This one will leave it blank, and we'll make this one striped or something. <laughs> so this is really cool work by Ken Chang. He found that, I'll show you in a second we found. He found that the rats used the geometric information to locate where the food was. And in fact, the, the, the mistakes they made were to geometrically correct places. And I can show you what I mean by that. Talk a little more closely. There's the picture of the, so you see the, the, the dot is where it's dated. And this is where the 71% of the searches are here, 21% are here. They don't search here, they don't search here. Okay, it looks in. So we applied these features on the walls this and the corners and the rats ignore those features they use the geometry of the room because look here 71 percent is here but the mistakes are here which is long wall left short or sorry long wall yeah long sorry short wall left long wall right that's actually the same thing this is they're paying attention to the geometry of this arena not to the Features. Does that make sense? This is kind of important you get this. Yes, please. So, like, noting that, like, I assume the 71, 71 percent. Right? That's right. Uh, is, is it also related to their, um, for lack of a better term, internal compass, their natural compass? Uh, that would be for longer range navigation. They certainly have an internal uh, compass is probably a little, yeah, they, they do. Um, it's not nearly that kind of accurate, and it's more for longer range navigation. Yeah, good question. You understand the paradigm, you understand the preparation, how this works. Okay. So, what he concluded rightfully that rats were responding to the geometry of the box. Okay. So, this happened a little later. Herman Stucky did this with toddlers and adults. No, they didn't have them looking for. Cocoa Puffs, 
because that seems kind of ridiculous for adults. Kids might, uh, little kids will do anything. There's a cocoa puff buried over there. You want to go get it? Any three-year-old be like, yeah, I'm in. For a single cocoa puff, I'm totally into this. So what they did is, well, for the toddlers, they had a teddy, a teddy bear. And they put it in one of the corners of a room. And they said, that's where I want you to look. And for the adults, they said, over there. That they assumed that was Cool. Now, they after they showed them that, they disoriented the subject. So how do they disorient adults? You blindfold them, and you spin them right round, baby, right round, like a record, baby. <laughs> song. You know, how you, dis how, you know how you disorient a three-year-old? You talk to them for 20 seconds. <laughs> really, seriously. What's your name? How are you? What's your favorite food? Oh, we'll find the teddy bear. Yeah, it's really, it doesn't take much. And then sometimes it was a cue. So sometimes the wall was blue, but most of the time the room was identical, but it was rectangular, white everywhere. But sometimes they put a blue, they have little walls with blue, sometimes it would just left white. And you can actually see the results here. See the adults are making reflection errors, or sort of rotation errors, so are the kids. Put the blue wall in though, the adults follow the blue wall. Kids don't, they told their stone. They don't. They're paying attention to the shape of the room. Okay. When I gave this talk, that got some pretty good laughs. Um, the adults, though, pay attention to the cue. The uh, same thing happened uh, with Pike in 2001. She had a big piece of Bristol board and told people where to point on it, and then she'd spin it. And then she put a white stripe on it, same thing. So it replicated Herbert Spelke for the adults. Now, what did we do with this experiment? We decided to rotate the object. Like I said, what Andrea Pike did is she rotated a big piece of black crystal board. We thought, let's use a smaller item, and let's make sure that we can keep the rotations constant, all that stuff. So we had a small rectangle on a computer monitor. Subjects were shown a red dot on a black rectangle. It spun. And their task was, as, they, as it spun, the dot would fade away. And their task was to use the mouse to point to where the dot was. So instead of being in a room, they've got a small object. Okay. So we had some software written. And what, this isn't really that important. I just threw this in just to give a little bit of credit to the guy who wrote the software for me, my name Ryan. But what happened was, we could set it up such that here, this is what happens here. So the person, first they present with the stimulus, they take the mouse, they point there, and then it spins around and moves. And my question to you is, where was the dot? And there's really only one way you can do this, though, you know, you didn't see the spinning. It spun uh, eight times a second. It's four, 480 RPM. And it also would move. So what did people do? These are 10 humans running 10 trials apiece. Oh, they make rotationers. They do make some reflectioners, but mostly the rotationers. Original dots here, so short, left, long, 
right? No, that's what this is. And that's where they make their errors. In fact, they make more errors than they make your correct answers. So that sort of fits nicely. Then we put the blue spot on, or blue stripe on. And now this becomes easy, doesn't it? And what Hermer and Spelke would say would be that adults would use the cube, except they didn't. They used the geometry of the cube, of, of the single. So whenever the people can, adults, they will use the geometry and the task that we developed, even if there's a reliable feature cube. What if we made geometry useless? How would you make geometry useless? Give them a square. <laughs> They're all the same. It's always the same size, um, size sides. And we did that. And of course, you would expect this. You get basically 25 roughly in each. When geometry becomes useless, so you, and you give them a cue, so you make one of the, the sides blue, oh, now they pay attention to that. But they only pay attention to it when geometry becomes useless. So what does this mean? Uh, this is a feature-independent geometric module in human spatial cognition. It's the first time this has ever been shown. People will use features if forced, if there's nothing else that works, but they'd rather use geometry. Our, our system would rather use geometry. It's a more reliable cue when you think about it. Geometry doesn't change, colors do. When geometry becomes useless, rotational errors become, well, there's no sense, they become useless, they, become, they don't happen because geometry becomes useless. the feature-independent geometric module. If we slowed the rotation down, it may be that people would use, we get different kinds of errors in the cube conditions. We actually made it, we, 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 we spun the thing fast enough, we kept spinning it until people made mistakes. Because we wanted to look at errors. You know, what's interesting in this, this kind of research is the mistakes people make, it's not the right answers. Because we make conclusions based on mistakes. Questions on that? Okay. So, some stuff we could look at does length by width follow Weber's law? In other words, when do you find, if we asked people, is this a triangle, sorry, a rectangle or a square, when do they call a rectangle a square? And Weber's law, which is a thing in perceptual psychophysics, says that the ratio should remain the same within a person. So within, I don't know, maybe within you it's 1.1, so one has to be 10% bigger than another, maybe within you it's 1.6, maybe within you it's 1.2, within you it's 1.9, this is 1.9 a little high. In fact, this is something an honor student did with me a few years ago. I have to run some more subjects before I get rid of that, but. What if the dot was put closer to the center of the stimulus? Maybe people would respond more to this, the Q, maybe less. I actually don't know the answer to that. 
What about a touch screen? What about people actually having to touch something like an iPad or something like that? Maybe that would change everything because of the movement. What about, you know, doing with pigeons or something? Having a pack of a screen. Possibility there. Right. And whenever I would give a talk, so you're actually seeing the actual slides that we're seeing at the conference, so I usually would thank people. See that? Anybody recognize Dwayne Keough at the age of 21? No. He was my research assistant. So that's Dwayne. And there's another one of my old students, that's Perry. That's the day he got his rats. Boy, does he look creepily excited to have rats? Yes, he does. And that's one of my other, one of my research assistants. That's Matt Canning. And you can see how long ago I did this because she's almost done a PhD and he was the psychologist. And finally, this was given, this talk was given at a conference in Florida. And big conference is always in Florida. And uh, so I thought, thought I'd show people what my front backyard looked like. <laughs> at the end, someone said, so did you Photoshop that? I said, I live in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. <laughs> That's what we call Tuesday. So what if we, oh, look, it's another talk. So, and you can see that's more recent because it's from here. You've seen some of these slides before. So we can skip through a couple of them. And Herman Spelke. Aha, this is what I just talked about. It's in the next year. It's quite a while So we know that subjects relied on geometry, and here's the results we had, right? From the cubed rectangle and the cubed square. So, what Stephanie Tannen did for her honors thesis, Stephanie's got a PhD now, um, is she looked at, one of the things she was reading was she was looking at uh, Valerie Tadbar, God, I can't pronounce his name and I feel so stupid. Like we kind of know each other, we follow each other on Twitter, we email back and forth, I can't pronounce his name. I once introduced him at a conference and I just literally did this. Our next talk is by, like I just kind of mumbled. Why, Valorith? One of the things, cool things he did though, he's a smart guy, is look at chicks, so little chickens, not chickadees, but chicks, little, you know, tweet, 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 little tiny chickens. Eventual dinner. Covered up one eye and had them do the thing or covered up another eye. The cool thing about, remember I talked about this with birds. Birds don't have a corpus callosum, information doesn't really travel from one brain region to another. It's like they're split brain patients. And had them do that find the item task. It's not a cocoa puff because you can't really, bird, little birds this big don't eat cocoa puffs. <laughs> a little bit of birds. And also he tested both eyes uncovered and he found that it was lateralized. What I mean by that is one um, hemisphere was better than another. So we can take a look at this here and see that we get rotation errors with the left eye and the right eye, we just get chance, right? So what that's saying is if it's rotation errors with the left eye, the left eye goes to the right hemisphere and in birds it's the whole left eye goes to the right, not like us with the left eye hemisphere, <coughs> visual field. So that's saying in, 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 in chicks at least, it's lateralized. So let's try this in people is what we tried to do. Okay, 
So what we wanted then is, will we get similar results as we get in, in humans to be another animal? So are human spatially tasks, and human spatial tasks are lateralized. If I ask you to do mental rotation, you know mental rotation, I told you about mental rotation? It's a very simple task. So I show you like, the stimulus I show you is say this. And I ask you, is that a letter? No, that's pretty quick. You say yes. And I ask you, is that a letter? And the answer is yes, because you rotate it. If I ask you, is that a letter? The answer is no, you still have to rotate it. You know the cool thing is? The more it's rotated, the longer it takes. You don't get these wrong, by the way, but it takes you more time if it's rotated more, and in fact, it's proportional the amount of time to the number of degrees it's rotated. It's incredibly cool. And we're better at it when it goes to our right visual field, to our, sorry, to our, our left visual field to the right part of our brain because it does more spatial reasoning. So other spatial tasks are like that in people. So what we did is we had, the white, we had a white triangle this time just because we used a white triangle. And we presented it either the stimuli binocularly or we presented it only to the right visual field and only to the left. How do you do that? You have people stare at the middle of the monitor and you have them looking at a stimulus and then it's off, and it's off to the side. Right? And with a bigger monitor, that's actually a pretty easy thing to set up. Red dot was in one of the corners, the dot faded, where was the dot? So it's the same task as before, except we moved where we put the stimulus. Yellow stripe on it or not. So that's the feature, just like the blue one. We expected they'd use the feature more in the right visual field condition because that's not as heavily a sort of spatial part of the brain. Right? That's, that's our reason. So we expect basically an interaction of viewing condition and feature presence or absence. And that's not what we got. So <laughs> what we got is the same pattern in both, in all three, in, in the left visual field, right visual field, and binocular. So they, the results didn't differ depending on the visual field. We also didn't get the error pattern that we got in 2003, which is weird. So, These weren't spun as fast, and it turns out that's probably what it is. We didn't spin them at eight revolutions per second. It was spun a little less. It was a matter of decoding the person who wrote the software. So it was more about five revolutions per second, per second, I think, which is just slow enough that people follow the feature. What does this mean? Well, the pattern of errors didn't change. So it's not lateralized. The important thing is it's not lateralized. So we have a corpus callosum, so stuff that would move from one hemisphere to the other very quickly. We also didn't get the error pattern we wanted. So what's up with that? That's probably, like I said, the, the uh, amount of the spinning, spinning speed. Oh yeah, it was 90 RPM where we used 480, so it's a lot slower. It's a lot easier to follow something that's going one and a half revolutions per, per, per second than eight revolutions per second. That's probably what <coughs> We found some really suggestive sex differences. So we found that men did tend to show the pattern of, of, of errors that we would expect and women didn't. But it was just suggestive. We only had five men and 17 women, so it's really hard to make any 
I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that we get a sex difference. It's more a matter of we need a lot more, we need more guys, we need more men. Some stuff that I've been thinking of. Make the task harder. When does a square become a rectangle is something that I've been interested in for a long time. And again, if that's something you're interested in, you could always consider doing your honors thesis with me. And I have looked at that a little bit with one of my students, Cassidy McDougall, Cassidy McDougall and we found that it does follow Beaver's Law, so that's pretty cool. Maybe that's lateralized. Maybe there are sex differences there. So that's, there's a lot of stuff you could do with this. And again, this was at the same conference but many years later, so I still thank people. This is their ages then, because my wife doesn't really count. She's, she shouldn't say that. Sorry, honey. <laughs> I work. I, I, that one I thank the Montreal Canadiens just for existing. And then I took another picture in my backyard. So we have a spatial module. Any questions in those two pieces of research that I just told you about that I did? Mostly my students did, and I just sat back and said, no, do more. So input from this spatial module, and this is going to be basically cell assemblies on top of cell assemblies, come together in associative parts of the brain, in the associative association cortex. These modules can be isolated without the use of some sort of wet neuropsychology. We isolated the spatial module in humans without, or the geometric module, I'm sorry, without having to do any manipulation to someone's brain. We did it behavioral. Okay. So maybe the, let's think of what a thought is. People think of a thought as being the smallest unit of cognition, maybe. So maybe the thought is there. Maybe that's a thought. So in the cortex, there are columns. Columns are just, so if you have, the cortex has layers, eh? like that. And there are connections within the layers, but there are also connections between the layers. Those are called, those are columns. Yeah, that really helped. That really looks like English writing. It said columns. So there are connections between the different layers. When those were discovered, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, people got really excited because they thought maybe those are the individual units of thought. And that seems a little strong. It's probably got something to do with it. But it's not. That's not just a thought. Also, it's not lost on me that the way that the things are coming into the slide is going from going up to the bottom, to, from the left to the right, and I find it a little weird. We still, there's something that we do, and I mean, other animals must do this too. We put all of our sensory and memorial thoughts together and form what we call an experience. I am able to speak right now. I'm speaking a language that we all understand and you all know what I mean, more or less. 
It's also, I don't know, temperature isn't here, probably about 19, 20 degrees. Uh, let's see. My left hand, my pockets, I'm holding my keys, and my right, I got my phone. I'm walking. Oh, also, my body temperature is, you know, my body's trying to maintain a constant temperature. We can go on and on. But those aren't separate things. They're all put together into what we call an experience. I know what these words mean. I remember writing a slide. I remember when I gave the talk. The first one, because I made a little joke, I made the spin right round, baby right round joke, and then some people laughed, and then the other one I said, the, the people were led into a white room, and then I paused and I said, with black curtains by the station. And no one here's gonna get that reference because that's to a cream song just did, like 1967. And that's when I said, I can tell the ages of people in this room by if they, which, which joke they got. I mean, all that stuff's happening at once. And I didn't have to do anything to make it happen. It just happens. Is that ever freaking cool? That's wicked cool. Like, I, I can't. It's hard to put this into words how cool this is. How is this all put together into an experience? This is often called the binding problem. Sometimes called the hard problem of human consciousness. I like the binding problem better because you're binding all these things together your memories, your sensory experiences right now. And we put all this together into one thing. It's freaking amazing to me. This and the idea of the engram, and the engram is the uh, unit of memory. If someone can figure out literally exactly how memories are stored, or if you can figure out the binding problem, you will win a Nobel Prize. So, now that I've explained this to you, if, if any of you do win a Nobel Prize, I'd like to mention my name, when you win the prize. Feel free, and I said this I think in another class, feel free to say bad things about me when you give your speech to the Nobel people. But just mention my name. All I ask is my name gets mentioned. You know, you can get up and say, I first heard about this from this asshole who taught me. That's fine. It still means the universe, our university will put in a press release. <laughs> Retired asshole professor, inspired Nobel winner. Um, and he was here. Questions? So that's where we'll stop today. I'll wrap everything up on Wednesday. And we can probably do some Q&A. And then next Monday, we can also do just straight up Q&A for the final. Thanks, everybody.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.